0: Here at Waterstone, we focus on living and loving like Jesus. In practice, this means that we connect with one another, engage in justice, and serve sacrificially. We are so glad that you're here and invite you to join us in person. If you're able to attend weekend services, we gather on Saturdays at 530 and Sundays in person and online at 10. We look forward to connecting with you. Good morning. My name is Isabel Whitaker, and I'm a part of the student ministry at Waterstone. A reading from 2 Thessalonians 2.13-3.5 But we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters loved by the Lord, because God chose you as firstfruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored, just as it was with you. And pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil people, for not everyone has faith. But the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord that you are doing and will continue to do the things we command. May the Lord direct your hearts into God's love and Christ's perseverance. The word of the Lord.
1: Senior high students in the house over here. My favorite novel is uh, Wendell Berry's Jaber Crow. Jaber Crow, Wendell Berry fans in the house. (laughs) Um, Jaber Crow in this fictional town in Kentucky called Port William. He's the barber, he's the gravedigger, and he's the church janitor. And uh, one of the chapters, he writes about how the church gives him strength. And I'd like to just share a couple of paragraphs from that chapter about how the church Gives strength. He talks first, I won't read this section, but he talks in towns like Port William. They always have young pastors because when the pastor starts having kids, they can't pay him enough to stay in those small towns. So every two or three years, they get a fresh out of the seminary pastor who thinks he's God's gift to preaching. <laughs> Wendell Berry says, I weathered even the worst sermons pretty well. <laughs> they had the great virtue of causing my mind to wander. Some of the best things I have ever thought of, I have thought during bad sermons. <laughs> I would look out the windows. In winter, when the win- windows were closed, the church seemed to admit the light strictly on its own terms, as if uneasy about the frank sunshine of this benighted world. In summer, when the sashes were raised, I watched with a great eager pleasure the town and the fields beyond the clouds the trees, the movements of the air, but then the sermons would seem more improbable. I have always loved a window, especially an open one. He goes on and talks about the hymns and the singing, talks about the announcements. He talks about his favorite part being the silences that almost happen randomly during a time of worship. And then at the very end of the chapter about how a church gives him strength, he shares this. One day, when I went up there to work as a janitor, sleepiness overcame me, and I lay down on the floor behind the back pew to take a nap. Waking or sleeping, I couldn't tell which, I saw all the people gathered there who had ever been there. I saw them as I had seen them from the back pew, where I sat with Uncle Othie, who would not come in any farther. While Aunt Cordy sang in the choir, and I saw them as I had seen them from the back pew on the Sunday before. I saw them in all the times past and to come. All somehow there in their own time and in all time and in no time. The cheerfully working and singing women. The men quiet or reluctant or shy. The weary, the troubled in spirit, the sick, the lame. The desperate, the dying, the little children tucked into the pews beside their elders, the young married couples full of visions, the old men with their dreams, the parents proud of their children, the grandparents with tears in their eyes, the pairs of young lovers attentive only to each other on the edge of the world, the grieving widows and widowers, the mothers and fathers of children newly dead, the proud the humble, the attentive, the distracted. I saw them all. I saw the creases crisscrossed on the backs of men's necks, their work thickened hands, the Sunday dresses faded with washing. They were just there. They said nothing, and I said nothing. I seemed to love them all with a love that was mine merely because it included me. When I came to myself again, my face was wet with tears. The strength of a church. I'd like to ask the question this morning, what makes a church strong? I think Paul, the apostle in 2 Thessalonians, is going to give us a couple of ideas about what makes a church strong, and thus, being strong, what strength can a church give? Now, there's something to it. The strength of a church. In my uh, files, I, I keep a lot of magazine articles, and over the last few years, probably 10 years, I've been clipping out files about a, a phenomenon that seems to be growing, especially in Europe, called atheist churches. And it's often in the old buildings that have had to close, and the church has had to shut down, but uh, it's they're taken over by groups who don't really believe in God. But they want to have what a church kind of has, singing, readings, talks, fellowship, food, atheist churches. And they've written about them in The Economist, in the BBC, in The Atlantic. It's a thing. Now, what's that thing? Well, one of the great sociologists of our time named Charles Taylor, a Canadian sociologist, he, he describes our secular time that we live in an imminent frame, imminent And what he means by that is we now live in a culture where the God question is no longer the question, because growing more and more people are exclusive humanists, and there's nothing beyond this, and there's nothing beyond us. It's just an imminent frame. But yet, what happens in a secular culture is that even in an imminent frame, there are certain winds of what we might call transcendence that still blow and can catch people off guard. Let me illustrate. Another uh, uh, novel that I read a few years back was a memoir, or not a novel, it was memoirs by a novelist called Julian Barnes, a British uh, writer, and he talks in his memoirs about the day that he became an atheist. He describes it really as a conversion experience. He was in his bedroom, and he was doing some things that teenage boys do in their bedrooms. When he had this, like, imposition of the presence of something, which in his mind, he began to think, if God is so big, then why would he have such scruples about what a teenage boy does in his bedroom? And what would his grandparents think from up there? And so, at that moment, he made up his mind that that was too ridiculous to even conceive, and he determined to be an atheist. And that went along fine, until they got into midlife, and he hit the things that often all of us hit in midlife, death, untimely deaths of loved ones, relationship issues and struggles. Getting to places in life you always wanted to be and arriving and thinking they're not what you hoped they would be. All that, you know, we call it midlife. He had an experience of waking up one night, Julian Barnes, and he began to panic because he had a sense of realizing that he was, as he says, mortal. A severe awareness of mortality, he called it, that he was going to die. He said it was like sleeping in a hotel room where the previous occupant had set the alarm clock and forgot to turn it off, and it jolts you awake in the middle of the night. And he began to realize, wait, I live in rented space. I'm not going to stay here. And near the end of the book, he has this line that I've never forgotten. He said, from that point on, I, I, I decided that I had to wager on every day Who gets to define reality? And did I tell you that the first line of the book starts like this? I don't believe in God, but I sure do miss him. That miss, that yearning is where the strength of the church steps in. So I'd like to ask the question this morning, what is the strength of a church and how can we keep a church strong? Our text is in 2 Thessalonians. I've had a lot of really interesting comments the last few weeks about 2 Thessalonians. It's just an interesting book and it has some very challenging passages. And Paul's exactly right what he said last week. One of the things I'm going to miss most when I retire as a pastor is having Paul preach the hardest text in the Bible. <laughs> if you weren't here last week, one of the most masterful sermons I've ever heard on arguably the hardest text in Scripture. I'm taking the next one, which is all really good and nice. How does Paul give strength to a church? Now we remember that uh, this church in Thessalonica was a struggling church outside pressures of persecution you mean they act 17 says that, that the believers were going around and they were Proclaiming uh, another king and his name was Jesus you can imagine in a town known for Roman Emperor worship to live that life And even on your birthday parties of your kids say no I'm not going to ask the Emperor to bless them I'm going to ask the one the Emperor should bow to Jesus to bless them you can imagine how that would be received or Thessalonica in the ancient world was known as one of having the largest Jewish populations, one of the largest synagogues, according to Josephus, in the ancient world. And you can imagine coming in and saying, the Messiah who's going to deliver Israel from the grips of Rome, well, he's the one that died on a cross. And he rose from the dead. You can imagine how that go over in the Jewish worldview. So here is a congregation, young, just weeks old, when Paul writes. And... Uh, they're struggling. Persecution from the outside and inside, as Paul preached last week, and, and uh, Paul Joslin about the Apostle Paul's words, um, they were people preaching some false doctrine, saying the second coming had already happened, and you're, you're doomed, and you're done. And Paul says, no, that's not what I taught. And there's, so there's this internal, so outside persecution, internal squabbling and relationship breakdown, and Paul says, you are a church in need of strength, so let's get strong. And so he does three things. First, I'm going to start with the imperatives in the text where he actually tells the church what to do to build their strength. We're going to start there. And then at the end, we're going to talk about the um, kind of, if that's the doing, what's the being? What should a church like soak in and be absorbed with? That would enable us to keep doing the things we need to do. So we'll talk about the two things to do first. And then at the very end, we'll go back to the beginning of text and say all of this is in this context that we never get over being loved by God. Sound good? All right. Let's start with one thing Paul says in verse 15. Here's what we need to do to be strong and to give that strength to the world. So then, brothers and sisters, and by the way, in the original language, brothers and sisters is the first word in the text, which means, listen up. He's emphasizing this. Stand firm and hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. Hold fast is this idea of conserve, like be conservative in your functions as a church, make sure you keep room for the teachings of the apostles. No matter what else you do, make sure the apostles' teaching is central. Hold fast, and that's more of a heart word language, like this has to be your joy, your passion. This has to be what you want to do. Stand firm hold fast. Apostles' doctrine. Paul and the ancient church, whether we shared with you in person and taught, or what we now know as the New Testament, the Gospels and the letters, are all the apostles' doctrine. And the point is this, what keeps a church strong is its commitment to the Word. Amen? Amen? Commitment to the Word. This explains why, you know, a church is like Waterstone, kind of the central piece of our worship is a 35, okay, 40-minute sermon. We believe that this is what keeps a church strong. Now, why? Well, First of all, I would say, if you want to know more about how the scriptures produce strength in our lives, I would encourage you to take the class at Wednesdays at waterstone that 's going to be the gist of that sermon, learning how to not only read and interpret the Word but how to use it as the discipline in our lives to produce the life of Christ in us that 's going to be an exciting course we 're looking forward to it, so i won 't take such a deep dive here, but I do want to say two brief things one. The church has to hold Scripture as central because it's the Scriptures that are the revelation of who God is. You know, we do have a talkative God. He's talking all the time through creation, through history, through culture. He's talking through little images of Him running around named you and me. God's always talking. But that talk never gets to the big questions, right? It never gets to, how did I get here? Why am I here? And what happens when I'm gone? That's where we need what's called special revelation. If God's talking all the time, generally, it's religion that gives special revelation. And so Christianity is unique in that it not only gives special revelation about what's really going on, but that special revelation is not a premise or a point or a philosophy. It's a person. The beauty of the Christian revelation of God is that God himself says, this book that you're reading it points to a person and that person is Jesus Christ. Look at Hebrews chapter 1, where the writer says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through prophets many times, various ways, but in these last days, He's spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, and through whom also He made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful word. And after He'd sat, He provided purification for sin. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, where he is now. But the purpose of keeping the scripture central in the church is that we are continually pointed to Jesus Christ, who is the exact representation of who God is. You want to know who God is? It's Jesus. Where is the biography of Jesus? It's the apostles' doctrine. Second thing Why it's important is it's not only revelation of who God is, it's transformation that produces Jesus' ways and Jesus' likes in our own hearts. It's through the scriptures that teach us how to practice the way of Jesus. Paul describes this in Romans 12. He says what the scriptures do is they renew your mind. So with a renewed mind, we have an understanding of history that it's not an endless spiral going downward. Someone turns the sun off and we're done. No, it's, it's, go, it's a goal. And at that goal is that Jesus standing as King of kings and Lord of lords at the end of time. History is a straight line with an intended purpose. And we're on the way. And you and I have a part in that story. That's the renewed mind. And it talks about being a living sacrifice. That means there's such powerful, like, uh, calling in this life of Jesus, that it sets it as the top-level love of our heart. Augustine talks about what Christian living is, as having your loves ordered properly. And as long as a church is preaching Jesus, it reminds us that at the very top, what matters most is Jesus' love for us and we loving Him back. Every other love fits underneath that. But sometimes, you know how we are, We get our loves out of order and put things above, and we begin to ask other things to give us what only Jesus can, and that's called addiction, and that's called despair, and that's called bondage and enslavement, and Jesus came to deliver us from all of that. But one of the things that happens as we, with renewed mind and a heart-living sacrifice, top-level love of Jesus, is that we can live a purposeful life. That's the beauty of Scripture. That's why it matters. So let me, before we move on to the second do, the second imperative, I want us to just briefly reflect a little bit on something. Like I talked about it earlier, that we value preaching here. And we're not, most churches in the evangelical world have a pulpit at the center and they value preaching. Why? As much as I hate to admit it, your lives are seldom changed by a sermon. Like you don't usually go to a sermon and say, Wow, I'm gonna change this and that and this and that. This is a life changing moment for me. Now it can happen. I hear now and then of something like that. But most weeks it's oh, okay. That okay. What's what's for lunch? Yeah. You know? <laughs> most weeks, it's not like but do you know what the value of preaching is? It's not to produce the wow every week. It's to say, here's Jesus, the king. Here's the kingdom. What course corrections do I need to make this week? What needs tweaked? What spaces in my heart need challenged? What like activities do I need to begin to engage to help me understand more deeply the part of the story I'm supposed to play. It's week-to-week course correction to keep our gospel ships in the right water. That's preaching. That's the value. It keeps us in. Now, I'd like to call out a group on this from Waterstone, and again in most churches, It's one of the most hard-working groups at Waterstone whose names you'll probably never know, and you don't even see them, and that's our elder team. We have nine elders at Waterstone, and one of their main callings is to keep the church, Waterstone, doctrinally orthodox. Unlike Wendell Berry, they do have to listen to the bad sermons, and make sure that we are keeping the gospel ship in the right water. These elders, they're the ones that would come up to Paul and myself and all all our preaching team and say, wait a minute, let's talk about this. Or are you sure? We're, We're missing this emphasis in our preaching. And they're the ones who challenge us. They're the ones who prayerfully take the sermons to heart and are asking the Lord, is this what We should be feeding the people at Waterstone right now. Paul and I, we work hard at our preaching calendar. We do those a year at a time typically. But it's the elders who take those, pray over them, and come back and say, no, this is what Waterstone needs this year. I just want you to know that. I want you to give a shout out to our elders for working so hard to help preaching be vital and life-giving here at Waterstone. The first thing that we do to keep a church strong so that we can give strength away is understanding that the Scripture is central, that God's talking to us through His Word. The second thing is in verses 3, I mean 1 and 2 of chapter 3. Paul writes, here's the second thing. This is the second thing you need to do to stay strong. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, pray. That's an imperative. Pray for us. That the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored, just as it was with you. And pray, so two times, uh, that we may be delivered from wicked and evil people, for not everyone has faith. This is an invitation to the church to participate in co-creating the mission of God on the earth to see people enter the kingdom of God. Pray. It's interesting. It says, pray for us, the message may spread rapidly. Spread rapidly in the original language is one word. It's the word run. Pray that the good news of Jesus will run as we do our ministry. Pray that it will have legs. Pray that it will take off and bear fruit. Run. Run now, it's always been this way. If you go back to Acts chapter 1, verse 14, why did the early church explode? It has to do something with this. Are they all joined together constantly in prayer? In other words, they were devoted to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his prayer. And where did they get that from? Well, Jesus himself modeled that in Mark chapter one. Very busy day. Every pull, everyone pulling on Jesus. This person needs healed. We need an exorcism over here. We need, uh, you know, a miracle over here. And Jesus can't be found. They're looking for him. They can't find him. Why? Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Do you know the main reason why we should pray and make? Devoted space in our life for it is because Jesus did. Jesus prayed. That's the DNA of the movement, prayer. Make space in your life for prayer. Pray that the gospel will run. So let me, I want to share a story in a minute that I shared with our staff a few weeks back about how the gospel runs when there's prayer But one practical takeaway from this morning that I want to encourage us to do. On our website, we have uh, local missions and global missions. And one of the things, especially in the global area, we have 14 different global partners serving around the world. One of the things I really would like to encourage you to do is to go on our website, take one name. Maybe you're drawn to a place where they're serving. Maybe it's a young family that draws your heart. Whatever it is, choose one and write their name down And like at your dinner table, your fridge, put their name. And under that sticky note for a year, write the word run. And pray that their ministry would run with the gospel. Now, the story. Here's what happens when churches pray. Here's how we stay strong. This is from a great book. You'll be hearing more about this book, probably a preaching series next year. But Praying Like Monks, Living Like Fools. Tyler Staton, he writes about Charles Spurgeon. How many of you have heard of Charles Spurgeon before? Yeah, Baptist preacher. Charles Spurgeon is arguably the most famous preacher in history. Whenever he was asked his secret, he was in the 1800s, pastored a megachurch in downtown London. In the 1800s, whenever he was asked his secret, he always pointed to a team of intercessors who prayed nonstop throughout his sermons. During every second that Spurgeon preached, his intercessors prayed. His church had a small room directly beneath the stage and the pulpit where the intercessors gathered to pray through the duration of his teaching. Spurgeon called it the boiler room. Asked for rhetorical tips, Spurgeon essentially only ever gave one piece of advice. God has a soft spot for the unglamorous, secret work of prayer. The influence of Spurgeon's prayer-saturated message is remarkable. The story is told, for example, of a British prisoner in a South American prison he was paid a visit by a British friend who gifted him with two novels. Amazingly, a Spurgeon sermon was wedged between the leaves of one of the novels. After reading the sermon right then and there inside a foreign jail cell, he surrendered his life to Christ. Similarly, biographer Lewis Drummond reports the story of a rural shepherd who, while working in the bush in Ballarat, Australia, found a leaf of a newspaper that had been blown around by the wind. Picking it up, he noticed that one of the pages looked like an advertisement, but happened to have nearly all of a Spurgeon's sermon printed on it. The shepherd read every word of it, and alone in a field, he surrendered his life to Jesus. Drummond wrote, the man confessed that if he had realized the article was a sermon, he never would have read it but seeing it in the newspaper in the form of an advertisement, he became interested, read it, and found Jesus. Folks, that's the gospel on the run. And what has fueled that running for 2,000 years is a praying church. Do you think we could start something like a boiler room here? Not some big program, again, but just some of you start doing it. Could we do that? A boiler room. What keeps a church strong is their commitment to keeping the word of God at the center of everything they do. And secondly, a deep commitment to prayer that makes the gospel run. But those two things all come out of an identity. The doing comes from being. And it's in verses 13 and 14 that Paul reminds us, reminds the believers in Thessalonica of whose they are, their identity. Here's what fuels all of this doing. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because God chose you as firstfruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at what's underlined, always to thank God for you. You know, I hope you've done this, and I would encourage you, if you haven't, to do it this week. Read the entirety. It's three short chapters, 2 Thessalonians. I think there's around 60-some verses. And what's interesting is about a quarter of those verses... Are Paul praying like we ought to thank God for you or may what the scholars call wish prayers may God do this for you may God do that for you and what's interesting about Paul's prayers is they are seldom about petition he rarely prays that God will like protect them or that that God will like meet their material needs most of Paul's prayers are taking the time to thank God for other believers Now, first of all, well, two things I would like about Paul. If you went across the street to the best Asian food uh, within a block of here called uh, chopsticks, Asian (laughs) food, um, you'd sit in a booth, there'd be an apostle Paul, and there'd be you, right? Well, maybe not, because Paul would begin to talk. We get a sense of how he would talk, and while he'd be talking, he'd also be talking to the Lord while he talks to you. Like right there, right in, he'd be praying to the Lord, thanking him. He'd be like saying, well, we should, Jesus, could you hear this? In our Stephen ministry, we talk about how vital prayer is in pastoral care because when you pray with someone, it's divine math, right? One plus one is three when you pray. God's in the room. God's in the room. That's how it was with Paul. If you were talking to him, he'd be talking to God while he talks to you. And it'd be quite a conversation. But it's interesting to me that much of what Paul's praying is, is thanksgiving. Now, you think about that. When we pray petition, when we ask God for stuff, what's the focus? The stuff, the need. But when we're thanking God for people, what's the focus? The people and what they already have. It's brilliant. It's practicing thanksgiving to make a church strong, keeping the focus on what we have when we have Jesus. It's brilliant. Now, if you go to the next slide, I broke this down line by line just to give you a sense of Paul's deep thinking here. When He, he doesn't say, oh, I'm thankful for the believers in Thessalonica. No, Here's, he, he spells it out. He breaks it down. He diagrams it. Brothers and sisters loved by the Lord, because God chose you as firstfruits to be saved, saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, saved through belief in the truth, he called you to this through our gospel that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Can we say, wow? That's the Hebrew word is amen. That's like every theology book since Justin Martyr in 100 AD to Jackie Hill Perry in 2023 is tethered to those verses. We are now trying to drain the ocean with a thimble. This is incredible, what it means to be saved. What it means that we're giving thanks for one another because we're believers. This is amazing. I'm only, because we're getting short on time, I'm only going to talk about God, you're loved by the Lord because God chose you to be first fruits. It's interesting that that language, first of all, is in every letter that Paul wrote, this language of being loved by God because he chose you. In most places, it goes on to say, he chose you in him before the foundation of the world. What does that mean? I have no idea, but I believe it, that we were chosen before the foundation of the world. What does that mean? Well, let's just take, stick our toe in it for a minute. We remember that time is a creation, right? That God is outside of time. He's beyond time. He's before time. That, that time is something that God made simultaneously with the universe. So, time is a created thing. And so, God is always outside of time. One of my favorite descriptions of this is by Jonathan Tran, who was working on a book about memory and trauma from soldiers in the Vietnam War. But he talks about time. He says, Time comes to God as the present of the past, the present of the present, and the present of the future. Because God exists without succession all at once, all things are present to God all at once. Just as God is not absent to time, so time is not the totality of God, meaning that God can be present too, but not dependent on time. So sometime before there was time, God chose on his best day you were his best idea before you were born he loved you fogelberg theology longer than there's been stars up in the heavens i've been in love with you god signed yeah now do you think that would be encouraging to a church that's struggling what's interesting Not only does Paul mention this doctrine of election, as the scholars call it, in every letter, he mentions it particularly in contexts where churches are being persecuted. What does a church most need to hear that's struggling? They need to hear that God chose you before time, and he's never going to let you go. His character is a promise-keeping character. That is amazing. Now I know I know you want me to take put up to my knee and get into this doctrine of election and ask the question well what happens first does god choose and we respond but what about human free will do we choose and we respond what's first calvinism or arminianism as the uh, you know the bl- the blowhards in seminary make us learn <laughs> do we emphasize god's sovereignty or do we emphasize human free will you're going to hate me for this, but do you know what the answer is? Yes! Yes, we do. We emphasize God is sovereign and He initiates everything. And we emphasize that unless human free will engages and decides for Jesus, they will not be saved. Both are true. That's the beauty of a finite mind trying to figure out how the watermelon got to the picnic like an ant by, by saying that. You know, we can't understand an infinite mind. It always starts with God, but not without us involved. That's the way he's designed it. You know, my favorite description of this whole argument is the funniest book in the Bible, Jonah. God says to Jonah, you know, before the world, before time, I wanted to on this particular day save a bunch of Ninevites. And Jonah says, I hate Nineveh, and so should you. And Jonah gets on a ship. God said to go to Nineveh in Iraq. Jonah catches a ship for Tarshish in Europe. But we all know what happened. God sent an Aqua Uber to pick him up. (laughs) And said, no, it's Nineveh. And Jonah says, I hate Nineveh. And God says, but I'm going to save people in Nineveh. And so he gets him to Nineveh. And you remember what happens. Jonah goes around. He preaches in the Hebrew five words, which in English would be turn and burn. Turn or burn. And the whole city is saved. Do you see the sovereignty of God in this? But do you also see that God was so determined that it's a human message responded to by humans that he gets Jonah there and nothing happens until they hear turn or burn? I'm thinking Jonah is still pouting in heaven, if pouting is allowed in heaven. And he knew it, he knew God loved them. It's both. It's both, and God says, wink, wink, (laughs) it's both. Now, let's bring this into application as we begin to wind down. What does this mean? I think for Waterstone, this means that if we grab onto this, that our calling to be a strong church is the first response we have to each other is to be thankful that God chose you and loves you, and that's how we engage around here, That if when we're coming to shake hands with somebody, now the word in our front of my mind is, well, I'm thankful for you. God chose you and he saves you. He loves you. How would that change? How would that make us a strong church if we lived that way? What strength would we have to give to a world that's always full of rejection? If they were to come in here and say, man, I'm so thankful for you. God chose you. God loves you. That would change everything about how we interact around here. If our first instinct was to say, thank you. God, thank you for this person. You love them, you chose them. God's been drilling this into me. I need to tell you that 2022 of 36 years of ministry now, 2022 was the hardest year by far. Some of it was health issues. Most of it was that after the smoke of the pandemic cleared, we realized at Waterstone that as far as we could tell, we lost 200 people from our church. Sleepless nights, I couldn't let go of that. Uh, I, as much as we, we could, we found out from you know, all the ways that we try to keep track of people, we found out and got a list of names, and I made it my personal mission to email and call every single person who had left last year. And about a hundred of them, I actually had phone or in-person conversations, drank a lot of coffee, ate a lot of food. Most of them left because they didn't agree With the way that we ran during the pandemic, many of them left because we weren't political enough or we were too political. It was eating me alive. In fact, I'd come into staff meetings and I'd say, oh, I met with so-and-so this week. They're leaving. They're gone. Blah, blah, blah. Finally, Billy, in his wisdom, pulled me aside and said, Larry, you got to stop doing this. This is depressing. I couldn't let go. Last December, we had a praise and prayer service called Blue Christmas for those who are grieving during the holidays. And you know, I, I don't, I've never heard the audible voice of God and I don't often have these moments, but it was during that service where I felt a, a impression from the Holy Spirit, a very clear, like, it, it's not words that I was thinking I would think. And during that service, I felt the impression of God saying, Larry, you need to shepherd the people who are here, not those who are not. That was turn one. I still was struggling. So we get into this last summer. In June, the first Saturday in June, Jan and I like to go to the Aspen Grove Market on the first Saturday. She likes to see all the stuff. I like to eat, whatever they have there. (laughs) And we're walking down an aisle, and I see one of those people who've left Waterstone, a long-time friend. We raised our kids together. I dedicated his kids. He had left. And it was one of those very awkward, everything in my head was screaming, go get a pretzel. But we engaged, and we had a a conversation, and he said, I know it was painful that we left. We're at another church, we're doing well. I said, it was painful. I wish you'd have said something to me. And we had a chance to reconcile. (laughs) But the last thing he said to me, just before we moved on, is he said, Larry, remember It takes all of us. It takes all of us. That was Paul, the apostle, and the Holy Spirit saying to me that even this person who hurt me by leaving us, God chose them and loves them. I'm still learning, I'm still growing, but imagine if thankfulness for one another was the way we treated one another. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that we could be a strong church. We want to be anchored, Jesus, on your word. We want to be motivated in prayer. But most of all, we want to be a church that's thankful for your work in every person's life. Lord, I specifically want to pray before we sing a great song. I want to pray for anyone here who's maybe feeling that they don't belong, that they they want the strength of a church, that they want, they're missing something. And I pray today, in this moment, that you would open up the eyes of their heart to see that Jesus has had them in mind before they were made. He's loved them from before the beginning. He chooses you. I pray for anyone who wants to belong that today, Jesus, you'd welcome them, that you'd move even now in their quiet heart to say, Jesus, I believe in you. So Lord, we're gonna give you this one last song and we want in this song to say to you that you are so amazing, like you are loving us before anything else was made. We just can't fathom that in our minds, but your mind is a mind of love and power and beauty. There's no one like you. The only word we can like describe you is you're holy. There's no one like you. You are holy. So let's stand together. Let's proclaim the holiness of God together.